Stories, fables, ghostly tales. A Thin Ghost and Others The Residence at Whitminster Dr. Ashton, Thomas Ashton, Doctor of Divinity, sat in his study, habitated in a dressing gown and with a silk cap on his shaven head, his wig being for the time taken off and placed on its block on a side table. He was a man of some fifty-five years, strongly made, of a sanguine complexion, an angry eye, and a long upper lip. Face and eye were lighted up at the moment when I picture him by the level ray of an afternoon sun that shone in upon him through a tall sash window, giving on the west. The room into which it shone was also tall, lined with bookcases, and where the walls showed between them, panelled. On the table near the doctor's elbow was a green cloth, and upon it, what he would have called a silver standish, a tray with inkstands, quill pens, a calf-bound book or two, some papers, a church warden pipe, and brass tobacco box, a flask cased in plated straw, and a liquor glass. The year was 1730, the month December, the hour somewhat past three in the afternoon. I have described in these lines pretty much all that a superficial observer would have noted when he looked into the room. What met Dr. Ashton's eye when he looked out of it, sitting in his leather armchair? Little more than the tops of the shrubs and fruit trees of his garden could be seen from that point, but the red brick wall of it was visible in almost all the length of its western side. In the middle of that was a gate, a double gate of rather elaborate iron scrollwork, which allowed something of a view beyond. Through it, he could see that the ground sloped away almost at once to a bottom, along which a stream must run, and rose steeply from it on the other side up to a field that was park-like in character, and thickly studded with oaks, now, of course, leafless. They did not stand so thick together, but some glimpse of sky and horizon could be seen between their stems. The sky was now golden, and the horizon, a horizon of distant woods, it seemed, was purple. But all that Dr. Ashton could find to say after contemplating this prospect for many minutes was, Abominable! A listener would have been aware, immediately upon this, of the sound of footsteps coming somewhat hurriedly in the direction of the study. By the resonance, he could have told that they were traversing a much larger room. Dr. Ashton turned round in his chair as the door opened and looked expectant. The incomer was a lady, a stout lady in the dress of the time, though I have made some attempt at indicating the doctor's costume. I will not enterprise that of his wife for it was Mrs. Ashton who now entered. She had an anxious, even a sorely distracted look, and it was in a very disturbed voice that she almost whispered to Dr. Ashton, putting her head close to his. He's in a very sad way, love. Worse, I'm afraid. Tut-tut, is he really? And he leaned back and looked in her face. She nodded. Two solemn bells, high up and not far away, rang. Out of the half hour at this moment, Mrs. Ashton started, Oh, do you think you could give order 
that the minister clock be stopped chiming tonight. Tis just over his chamber, and will keep him from sleeping, and his sleep is the only chance for him, that's certain. Why, to be sure, if there were need, real need, it could be done, but not upon any light occasion. This Frank, now, do you assure me that his recovery stands upon it? Said Dr. Ashton, his voice was loud and rather hard. I do verily believe it, said his wife. Then it must be. Bid Molly run across to Simpkins and say on my authority that he is to stop the clock chimes at sunset, and yes, she is after that to say to my lord Saul that I wish to see him presently in this room. Mrs. Ashton hurried on. Before any other visitor enters, it will be well to explain the situation. Dr. Ashton was the holder, among other preferments, of a prebend in the rich collegiate church of Whitminster, one of the foundations which, though not a cathedral, survived a dissolution and reformation and retained its constitution and endowments for a hundred years after the time of which I write. The great church, the residences of the dean, and the two prebendarians, the choir and its appurtenances were all intact and in working order. A dean who flourished soon after had been a great builder and had erected a spacious quadrangle of red brick adjoining the church of the residence of the officials. Some of these persons were no longer required. Their officers had dwindled down to mere titles, borne by clergy or lawyers in the town and neighbourhood, and so the houses that had been meant to accommodate eight or ten people were now shared among three. The dean and the two prebendaries. Dr. Ashton's included what had been the common parlour and the dining hall of the whole body. It occupied a whole side of the court, and at one end had a private door into the minister. The other end, as we have seen, looked out over the country. So much for the house. As for the inmates, Dr. Ashton was a wealthy man and childless, and he had adopted, or rather undertaken to bring up the orphan son of his wife's sister, Frank Siddle, was the lad's name. He had been a good many months in the house. Then one day came a letter from an Irish peer, the Earl of Kildonan, who had known Dr. Ashton at college, putting it to the doctor whether he would consider taking into his family the Viscount Saul, the Earl's heir, and acting in some sort as his tutor. Lord Kildonan was shortly to take up a post in the Lisbon Embassy and the boy was unfit to make the voyage. Not that he is sickly, the Earl wrote. Though you will find him whimsical, or of late, I have thought him so, and to confirm this, t'was only today his old nurse came expressly to tell me he was possessed. But let that pass. I'll warrant you can find a spell to make all straight. Your arm was stout enough in old days, and I give you plenty authority to use it as you see fit. The truth is, he has here no boys of his age, or quality to consort with, and is given to moping about in roughs and graveyards, and he brings home romances that fright my servants out of their wits. So, there are you and your lady forewarned. It was perhaps with half an eye open to the possibility of an Irish bisphoric, in which another sentence in the Earl's letter seemed to hint that Dr. Ashton accepted the charge of my lord, Viscount Saul, and of the two hundred guineas a year that would come with him. So he came one night in September, when he got out of the chase that brought him. He went first and spoke to the postboy and gave him some money, 
and patted the neck of the horse. Whether he made some movement that scared it or not, that was very nearly a nasty accident, for the beast started violently, and the postillion, being unready, was thrown and lost his fee, and he was found afterwards, and the chase lost some paint of the gate spots, and the wheel went over the man's foot, who was taking out the baggage. When Lord Saul came up to the steps, into the light of the lamp, in the porch to be greeted by Dr. Ashton, he was seen to be a thin youth of, say, sixteen years old, with straight black hair and the pale colouring that is common to such a figure. He took the accident and commotion calmly enough, and expressed a proper anxiety for the people who had been or might have been hurt. His voice was smooth and pleasant, and without any trace, curiously, of an Irish baroque. Frank Siddall was a younger boy, perhaps of eleven or twelve, but Lord Saul did not for that reject his company. Frank was able to teach him various games he had not known in Ireland, and he was apt at learning them, apt too at his books, though he had had little or no regular teaching at home. It was not long before he was making a shift to puzzle out the inscriptions of the tomb in the minister, and he would often put a question to the doctor about the old books in the library that required some thought to answer. It is to be supposed that he made himself very agreeable to the servants, for within ten days of his coming, they were almost falling over each other in their efforts to oblige him. At the same time, Mrs. Ashton was rather put to it to find new maid servants, for there were several changes, and some of the families in the town from which she had been accustomed to draw seemed to have no one available. She was forced to go further afield than was usual. These generalities I gather from the doctor's note in his diary and from letters. They are generalities and we should like, in view of what he's been told, something sharper and more detailed. We get it in entries which begin late in the year and I think were posted up altogether after the final incident. But they cover so few days in all that, there is no need to doubt that the writer could remember the course of things accurately. On a Friday morning it was that a fox, or perhaps a cat, made away with Mrs. Ashton's most prized black cockerel, a bird without a single white feather on its body. Her husband had told her often enough that it would make a suitable sacrifice to Eusepolis, that had discomforted her much, and now she would hardly be consoled. The boy looked everywhere for traces of it. Lord Saul brought in a few feathers, which seemed to have been partially burnt on the garden rubbish heap. It was on the same day that Dr. Ashton, looking out of the upper window, saw the two boys playing in the corner of the garden at game. At a game, he did not understand. Frank was looking earnestly at something in the palm of his hand. Saul stood behind him and seemed to be listening. After some minutes, he very gently laid his hand on Frank's head, and almost instantly thereupon, Frank suddenly dropped whatever it was that he was holding, clapped his hands to his eyes, and sank down on the grass. Saul, whose face expressed great anger, hastily picked the object up, of which it could only be seen that it was glittering, put it in his pocket and turned away, leaving Frank huddled up on the grass. Dr. Ashton rapped on the window to attract their attention, and Saul looked up as if in alarm, and then springing to Frank, pulled him up by the arm and led him away. When they came into dinner, Saul explained that they had been acting a part of a tragedy of Radamistus, 
in which the heroine reads the future fate of her father's kingdom by means of a glass ball held in her hand and is overcome by the terrible events she has seen. During this explanation, Frank said nothing, only looked rather bewilderingly at Saul. He must, Mrs. Ashton thought, have contracted a chill from the wet of the grass. For that evening he was certainly feverish and disordered. And the disorder was of the mind, as well as of the body, for he seemed to have something he wished to say to Mrs. Ashton, only a press of household affairs prevented her from paying attention to him. And when she went, according to her habit, to see that the light in the boy's chamber had been taken away, and to bid to them good night, he seemed to be sleeping, though his face was unnaturally flushed, to her thinking, that is. Lord Saul, however, was pale and quiet, and smiling in his slumber. Next morning it happened that Dr. Ashton was occupied in church and other business, and unable to take the boys' lessons. He therefore set them tasks to be written and brought to them. Three times, if not oftener. Frank knocked at the study door, and each time the door chanced to be engaged with some visitor, and sent the boy off rather roughly, which he later regretted. Two clergymen were at dinner this day, and both remarked, being fathers of families, that the lad seemed sickening for a fever, in which they were too near to the truth, and it had been better if he had been put to bed forthwith. For a couple of hours later in the afternoon, he came running into the house, crying out in a way that was really terrifying, and rushing to Mrs. Ashen, clung about her, begging her to protect him, and saying, Keep them off! Keep them off! Without intermission. And it was now evident that some sickness had taken strong hold of him. He was therefore got to bed in another chamber from that in which he commonly lay, and the physician brought to him who pronounced the disorder to be grave and affecting the lad's brain, and prognosticated a fatal end to it if strict quiet were not observed, and those sedative remedies used which he should prescribe. We are now come by another way to the point which we had reached before. The minister clock has been stopped from striking, and Lord Sol is on the threshold of the study. What account can you give of this poor lad's state? was Dr. Ashton's first question. Why, sir, little more than you know already, I fancy. I must blame myself, though, for giving him a fright yesterday when we were acting that foolish play you saw. I fear I made him take it more to heart than I meant. How so? Well, by telling him foolish tales I picked up in Ireland of what we call the second sight. Second sight? What kind of sight might that be? Why? You know our ignorant people pretend that some are able to foresee what is to come, sometimes in the glass or in the air, maybe. And at Clildenan, we had an old woman that pretended to be such a power, and I dare say I called the matter more highly than I should. But I never dreamed Frank would take it so near as he did. You were wrong, my lord, very wrong in meddling with such superstitious matters at all. And you should have considered whose house you were in, and how little becoming... Such actions are to my character and person or to your own. But pray how came it that you, acting as you say, a play, should fall upon anything that could so alarm Frank? That is all I can hardly tell, sir. He passed all in a moment from a rant about battles and lovers and Cleodora and antigens to something I could not follow at all, and then dropped down as you saw. Yes, 
was at the moment when you laid your hand on the top of his head. Lord Saul gave a quick look at his questioner, quick and spiteful, and for the first time seemed unready with an answer. About that time, it may have been, he said. I've tried to recollect myself, but I'm not sure. There was, at any rate, no significance in what I did then. Ah, said Dr. Ashton. Well, my lord, I should do wrong were I not to tell you that this fright of my poor nephew may have very ill consequences to him. The doctor speaks very despondently of his state. Lord Saul pressed his hands together and looked earnestly upon Dr. Ashton. I am willing to believe you had no bad intention, and assuredly you can have no reason to bear the poor boy malice, but I cannot wholly free you from blame in the affair. As he spoke, the hurrying steps were heard again, and Mrs. Ashton came quickly into the room, carrying a candle, for the evening had been this time closed in. She was greatly agitated. Oh, come, she cried. Come directly, I'm sure he is going. Going? Frank, is it possible already? With some such incoherent words, the doctor caught up a book of prayers from the table and ran out after his wife. Lord Saul stopped for a moment where he was. Molly the maid saw him bend over and put both hands to his face. If it were the last words she had to speak, she said afterwards he was striving to keep back a fit of laughing. Then he went out softly, following the others. Mrs. Ashton was sadly right in her forecast. I have no inclination to imagine the last scene in detail. What Dr. Ashton records is, or may be taken to be, important to the story. They asked Frank if he would like to see his companion, Lord Saul, once again. The boy was quite collected, it appears, in these moments. No, he said. I do not want to see him, but you should tell him I'm afraid he will be very cold. What do you mean, my dear? said Mrs. Ashton. Only that, said Frank. But say to him, besides that, I am free of them now. But he should take care. And I am sorry about your black cockerel, Aunt Ashton. But he said we must use it so if we were to see all that could be seen. Not many minutes after he was gone, both the Ashtons were grieved. She, naturally, most. But the doctor, though not an emotional man, felt the pathos of the early death, and, besides, there was the growing suspicion that all had not been told by him, by Saul, and that there was something here which was out of his beaten track. When he left the chamber of death, it was to walk across the quadrangle of the residence to the sexton's house. A passing bell, the greatest of the minister's bells, must be rung. A grave must be dug in the minister's yard, and there was now no need to silence the chiming of the minister's clock. As he came slowly back in the dark, he thought he must see Lord Saul again. That matter of the black cockerel, trifling as it might seem, would have to be cleared up. It might be merely a fancy of the sick boy, but if not, was there not a witch trial he had read, in which some grim little rite of sacrifice had played a part? Yes, he must see Saul. I rather guess these thoughts of his than find written authority for them. That there was another interview is certain, certain also that Saul would, or as he said, could, throw no light on Frank's words. 
though the message or some part of it appeared to affect him horribly. But there is no record of the talk in detail, and it is only said that Saul sat all that evening in the study, and when he bid good night, which he did most reluctantly, he asked for the doctor's prayers. The month of January was near its end when Lord Kildanon in the embassy at Lisbon received a letter that for once gravely disturbed that vain man and neglectful father. Saul was dead. The scene at Frank's burial had been very distressing. The day was awful in blackness and wind, the bearers, staggering blindly along under the flapping black pall, found it a hard job when they emerged from the porch of the minister to make their way to the grave. Mrs. Ashton was in her room. Women did not then go to their kinsfolk's funeral. But Saul was there, draped in the mourning cloak of the time, and his face was white and fixed as that of one dead, except when, as was noticed, three or four times, he suddenly turned his head to the left and looked over his shoulder. It was then alive with a terrible expression of listening fear. No one saw him go away, and no one could find him that evening. All night the gale buffeted the high windows of the church, and howled over the upland and roared through the woodland. It was useless to search in the open, no voice of shouting or cry for help could possibly be heard. All that Dr. Ashton could do was to warn the people about the college and the town's constables, and to sit up on the alert for any news and this he did. News came early next morning, brought by the sexton, whose business it was to open the church for early prayers at seven, and who sent the maid rushing upstairs with wild eyes and flying hair to summon her master. The two men dashed across the south door of the minister, there to find Lord Sword clinging desperately to the great ring of the door. His head sunk between his shoulders, his stockings in rags, his shoes gone, his legs torn and bloody. This was what had to be told the Lord Kildanon, and this really ends the first part of the story. The tomb of Frank Siddall and of Lord Viscount Saul, only child and heir to William Earl of Kildanon, is one, a stone altar tomb in Whitminster Churchyard. Dr. Ashton lived on for over thirty years in his prebendal house. I do not know how quietly, but without visible disturbance. His successor preferred a house he already owned in the town, and left that of the senior prebendary vacant. Between them, these two men saw the 18th century out and the 19th century in. For Mr. Hindes, the successor of Ashton, became prebendary at nine and twenty, and died at nine and eighteen. So that it was not till 1823 or 1824 that anyone succeeded to the post who intended to make the house his home. The man who did was Dr. Henry Aldis, whose name may be known to some of my readers as that of the author of a row of volumes labelled Aldis Works, which occupy a place that must be honoured since it is so rarely touched upon the shelves of many a substantial library. Dr. Aldis, his niece, and his servants took some months to transfer furniture and books from his Dorisshire parsonage to the quadrangle of Whitminster and to get everything into place. But eventually the work was done, and the house, which though untenanted, had always been kept sound and weather-tight, woke up, and like Monte Cristo's mansion at Utile, lived, sang, and bloomed once more. On a certain morning in June, it looked especially fair, as Dr. Aldous 
strolled in his garden before breakfast and gazed over the red roof at the minister's tower with its four gold veins, backed by a very blue sky and very white little clouds. Mary, he said, as he seated himself at the breakfast table and laid down something hard and shiny on the cloth. Here's a find which the boy made just now. You'll be sharper than I if you can guess what it's meant for. It was a round and perfectly smooth tablet, as much as an inch thick, of which seemed clear glass. It is rather attractive at all events, said Mary. She was a fair woman, with light hair and large eyes, rather a devotee of literature. Yes, said her uncle. I thought you'd be pleased with it. I presume it came from the house. It turned up in the rubbish heap in the corner. I'm not sure that I do like it after all, said Mary some minutes later. Why, why in the world not, my dear? I don't know, I'm, I'm sure. Perhaps it's only fancy. Yes, only fancy and romance, of course. What's that book now? The name of that book, I mean, that you had your head in all yesterday? The Talisman, Uncle. Oh, if this should turn out to be a talisman, how enchanting it would be. Yes, the talisman. Ah, well, you're welcome to it, whatever it is. I must be off about my business. Is all well in the house? Does it suit you? Any complaints from the servants' hall? No, indeed nothing could be more charming. The only soup-con of a complaint, besides the lock of the linen closet, which I told you of, is that Mrs. Maple says she cannot get rid of the sawflies out of the room you pass through at the end of the hall. By the way, are you sure you like your bedroom? It is a long way off from anyone else's, you know. Like it? To be sure I do. The further off from you, my dear, the better. There, don't think it's necessary to beat me, except my apologies, but what are sawflies? Will they eat my coats? If not, they may have the room themselves for what I care. We are not likely to be using it. No, of course not. Well, what she calls sawflies are those reddish things like a daddy long legs, but smaller. And there are a great many of them perching about that room, certainly. I don't like them, but I don't fancy they are mischievous. There seems to be several things you don't like this fine morning, said her uncle as he closed the door. Miss Aldis remained in her chair looking at the tablet, which she was holding in the palm of her hand. The smile that had been on her face faded slowly from it and gave place to an expression of curiosity and almost strained attention. Her reverie was broken by the entrance of Mrs. Maple and her invariable opening. Oh, miss, could I speak to you a minute? A letter from Miss Oldies to a friend in Mitchfield, begun a day or two before, it is the next source for this story. It is not devoid of the traces of the influence of that leader of female thought in her day, Miss Anna Seward known to some as the Swan of Litchfield. My sweetest Emily will be rejoiced to hear that we are at length, my beloved uncle and myself, settled in the house that now calls us master, nay, master and mistress. As in past ages, it has caused so many others. Here we taste a mingling of modern elegance and hoary antiquity, such as has never ere now graced life for either of us. The town, small as it is, affords us some reflection, pale indeed, but veritable, of the suite of polite intercourse. The adjacent country numbers, amid the occupants of its scattered mansions, some whose polish is annually refreshed by contact with metropolitan splendour. 
and others whose robust and homely geniality is, at times, and by way of contrast, not less cheering and acceptable. Tired of the parlors and drawing rooms of our friends, we have ready to hand a refuge from the clash of wits or the small talk of a day amid the solemn beauties of our venerable minister, whose silvern chimes daily knoll us to prayer, and in the shady walks of whose tranquil graveyard we muse with softened heart, and ever and anon with moistened eye, upon the memorials of the young, the beautiful, the aged, the wise, and the good. Here, there, in an abrupt break, both in the writing and the style. But, my dearest Emily, I can no longer write with the care which you deserve, and in which we both take pleasure. What I have to tell you is wholly foreign to what has gone before. This morning my uncle brought in to breakfast an object which had been found in the garden. It was a glass or crystal tablet of this shape. A little sketch is given. Which he handed to me, and which, after he left the room, remained on the table by me. I gazed at it, I know not why, for some minutes, till called away by the day's duties, and you will smile incredulously when I say that I seemed to myself to begin to descry reflection in its objects and scenes which were not in the room where I was. You will not, however, be surprised that after such an experience I took the first opportunity to schedule myself in my room with what I now have believed to be a talisman of mickle might. I was not disappointed, I assure you, Emily, by that memory which is dearest to both of us, that what I went through this afternoon transcends the limit of what I had before deemed credible. In brief, what I saw seated in my bedroom in the broad day of summer and looking into the crystal depths of that small round tablet was this. First, a prospect strange to me of an enclosure of rough and hillocky grass, with a grey stone ruin in the midst, and a wall of rough stones about it. In this stood an old and very ugly woman, in a red cloak and ragged skirt, talking to a boy dressed in the fashion or maybe of maybe a hundred years ago. She put something which glittered into his hand, and he something into hers, which I saw to be money for a single coin fell from her into the grass. The scene passed. I should have remarked, by the way, that on the rough walls of the enclosure I could distinguish bones and even a skull lying in a disorderly fashion. Next, I was looking upon two boys, one of the figure of the former vision, the other younger. They were in a plot of garden walled round, and this garden, in spite of the difference in arrangement and the small size of the trees, I could clearly recognize as being that upon which I now look from my window. The boys were engaged in some curious play, it seemed. Something was smoldering on the ground. The elder placed his hands upon it and then raised them in what I took to be an attitude of prayer. And I saw and started to see that on them were deep stains of blood. The sky above was overcast. The same boy now turned his face towards the wall of the garden and beckoned with both his hands raised, and as he did so I was conscious that some moving objects were becoming visible over the top of the wall, with the hands or other parts of some animal or human forms I could not tell. Upon the instant, the elder boy turned sharply, seized the arm of the younger boy, who all this time 
had been poring over what lay on the ground, and both hurried off. I then saw blood upon the grass, a little pile of bricks, and what I thought were black feathers scattered about. That scene closed, and the next was so dark that perhaps the full meaning of it escaped me. But what I seemed to see was a form at first crouching low amongst trees or bushes that were being threshed by a violent wind, then running very swiftly and constantly, turning a pale face to look behind him, as if he feared a pursuer. And indeed, pursuers were following hard after him. Their shapes were but dimly seen, their number, three or four perhaps, only guessed. I suppose they were on the whole more like dogs than anything else, but dogs such as we have seen these assuredly were not. Could I have closed my eyes to this horror? I would have done so at once. But I was helpless. The last I saw was the victim darting beneath an arch and clutching at some object to which he clung, and those that were pursuing him overtook him, and I seemed to have heard the echo of a cry of despair. It may be that I became unconscious. Certainly, I had the sensation of awakening to the light of day after an interval of darkness. Such, in literal truth, Emily, was my vision. I can call it by no other name of this afternoon. Tell me, have I not been the unwilling witness of some episode of a tragedy connected with the very house itself? And this is where we'll stop for now. We will continue the story of A Thin Ghost and Others, subchapter The Residence of Whitminster. Good day, you very special people, aka my listeners. I hope you enjoyed part one of the old school horror tale, filled with mystery and slow burning snazziness. I'll be continuing and finishing this one off next week as a two part episode, one that I hope you will enjoy. I have no idea, by the way, what that kid was killed by, what took the other boy's life, and why on earth that boy was on the brink of laughter as he went to see his pal's death. So many unanswered questions. So join me next week as we uncover the why of this tale. Oh, if you want to support the show, you can visit my Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash SFGT, where all Patreons receive a 320 kilobyte audio episode, so it'll sound even crispier in your earballs. Also, all Patreon supporters receive a shout out each episode and keep these podcast lights a glowing. Now, I want to thank some very awesome people. Firstly, my Ode Night Tea Titan, the brilliant demigod of tea that straps the show to a podcast rocket and blammer it out into space. Cheers, you awesome, awesome person, you Matto Star. I hope you receive my email and verbal response. Mate, thanks to you, I've been able to source this particular episode and uh, text as I do more and more research on classic tales and implement more and more fancy techniques to crispify my audio. Yes, totally a technical term. Cheers, you legend. And I hope your week is just pure magic. Cheers, man. And my fantastic King Lizard Kong, the man that puts the pow in kapow. Thank you so much for your support, you legend, you. Today, I'm working closely with Renegade and learning to use the tools to cut out breaths and clicks, but also keep it natural at the same time. Truly a challenge, especially as I'm recovering from a chest infection. Nonetheless, I hope you lovelies hear the difference. All thanks to you and lovelies like you, Lizard. Cheers, mate. Also, I want to thank my Ogre Enforcers and Patreon supporters. I am lucky to have Chad Warren, Joss Heather, 
Sunshine Days, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffaelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Paige Kramer, and Jane Gumnick, you epically kind people. Lastly, don't forget to leave a review if you've got some time. I really love iTunes reviews. So if you have 10 seconds spare, that goes a long way to help me find epic people like you to listen to the show. And for those of you that have already done that, you are legends. Now pour your tea. Make it nice. Ensure your flavoring is precise. Like a story, let it flow. Let the fables and tales take you home. It's these stories that bring us together and old audio that reminds us of how we've changed. Stay a while, have a listen. And as always, I hope to see you again. Cheers, you brilliant people. Have a fantastic week. Catch ya.